Mary, do you want to just start again by just telling us what it was about this book that made you think that this would be the great choice that it is for our book group? (laughs) Absolutely. So um, I have a shelf. I won't try to show it to you here, but it's actually more than one shelf full of books about climate change. Uh, books that have more of a science perspective, books that have more of a sociological, political perspective, books that have um, uh, sort of a hopeful, if we just do these things, everything's going to be okay. And other books that say, you know, we're all going to hell anyway, but we could at least make it less bad. And um, I have my own history, which, um, you know, for those who I haven't already shared my story with, um, includes having spent the years from 2007 uh, until uh, 2020 um, in charge of California's uh, climate action program, which was passed in response to the Kyoto Uh, Accord and led me to be in Paris in time for the Paris Agreement and had gotten me involved in working on a number of different projects with the UN dealing with uh, climate change. So um, I feel like um, I've been immersed in these issues for a long time. Um, This book, uh, which came to me in a completely unsolicited way, uh, it was a it was a Christmas present from my daughter, who thinks that I read too many boring um, sort of Oprah type novels and I don't read enough science fiction or speculative fiction. Um, sent me a, a small stack of books, and this was one of them. And um, it sat on my desk for quite a long time, unopened, um, until I finally decided I was going to give it a try. And uh, it probably was prompted, that probably was prompted by having read about it or heard somebody refer to it somewhere else. Anyway, finally got into it and quickly realized that I was, um, first of all, in the presence of a really masterful novelist. Uh, but also that this was a book that was going to take me on a wild ride. And I think it it did. And um, what it made me realize was that uh, everything that I know that's in the book that can be fact-checked in terms of impacts of climate change and the number of degrees of warming that lead to certain results and the ways in which heat kills people and so forth um, is absolutely true. And in fact, is uh, to some extent already happening. Uh, And the rest of it, or the other many other aspects of it, like the responses uh, in terms of uh, terrorism, in terms of geoengineering ideas coming into effect and people doing very risky things um, in terms of kind of big changes in the economic system, uh, all of which occur after it's too late to stop major catastrophes. But as you'll see, when you go through, if, if you finish the book, which I hope you either have or will, um, are, are things that um, in fact, are predictable, not necessarily certain, because some of them, you know, haven't happened yet, but some of them are things that you can sort of see underway. And it seemed to me that 
of all the books that I had read about climate change, this was the one that was most comprehensive and maybe most able to get to people um, of different persuasions because um, you don't, um, what should I say? Um, you, you don't have to be convinced uh, from, a, uh, from an intellectual perspective, I suppose, to be persuaded in an emotional way about what this what's happening and um and i and i think it does that well and i think it also um again as you go on is not a book that says um life will end um you know human civilization will end but it does uh predict some very very big changes in in the way things are uh, today. So, I mean, it just seemed to me that it would be a book that would provoke a good discussion. And so uh, when Kate suggested to me that, you know, we might do some sort of a class on climate change, I said, well, instead of doing a class uh, where I would, you know, give lectures, um, which I just as soon not do anyway. Um, I would rather I'd rather have a book group and have a discussion and see where we could get. So that's that's the introduction. So um, so uh, our book group is being led by Mary, and it's a book about a heroine named Mary. <laughs> Sort of with a job not unlike some of the jobs that you've done, it seems to me. I love that. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, uh, and and what? So why don't we just jump right right in to maybe one of the first examples of how this is a different sort of book about climate change, and that is um, the way that it starts the the those opening scenes in India. And I'm wondering why do you think that the story starts in India. I wonder if anyone has thoughts on that question. Well, for, for one reason, I think it's because uh, climate change uh, has already and will continue to lead to mass migrations of people, particularly uh, in those countries that are suffering the heat most, or those that have uh, uh, oceans that are rising that, that virtually are going to eliminate them. And that's going to create a totally new world order. Mm -hmm. And actually, there was an episode already reported um, just in this past year in India, uh, where uh, it wasn't quite uh, an entire village, but it was much of a region that experienced a similar sort of extreme heat wave, where thousands of, of people died. Uh, and because it was India and it's far away and because we're used to big numbers, uh, because the population is so huge, the reaction was maybe not as um, as much as you might have expected. You know, there was like, I saw one or two stories in the New York Times and um, not much else really in, in the way of follow-up. But as, as Stuart just said, um, the impacts of climate change are already being felt and will be felt most severely 
um, in places in the world that also have some of the poorest populations uh, on the planet. And so therefore the, the injustice of it, um, you know, with the effects being so much greater on people who were not the ones who were the major cause um, has, has led to some of the political uh, tensions around the issue as well, because you know, when I first started working on this issue, um, countries like China and India were taking the position that they didn't really have to do much of anything about climate change because it wasn't their fault. And therefore the rich countries should be the ones who should bear the cost of um, changing their energy systems and, and fixing um, the problem. And it wasn't until Paris, but it did happen in Paris that 193 countries, including India and China and the Southeast Asian countries, all signed on to an agreement that said every country has to do something uh, about it. They can do whatever makes most sense within their own economies and their own abilities, but that it's not something where some people are going to just sit by or stand by and others are going uh, are, are to do the work. And that was important because um, it helped to sort of bridge the gap of um, countries that um, said, well, okay, so, you know, yes, it's true, we have a richer economy and we could do more, but we can't just, um, you know, be the ones to spend all the money to change our entire energy system or, you know, shut down all of our economy while other countries then uh, just will, you know, speed up and, and surpass us, that that would be unfair. Mm -hmm. And so this just sort of ended the, at least temporarily ended the argument about whether this was something that, you know, was only the responsibility of the countries that historically had done the most to put emissions into the atmosphere. Juliana, I see that your hand is up. Um, so I felt that they put India there because it was very, for literary purpose, because um, Genghis River is very famous and the whole like story it began with a very powerful um, imagery um, like, I can like picture Genghis River I can picture the Indian people and their skin color and um, the heat like I, I can just like picture it. it was like a very powerful place for for just like a literature um, perspective. Hmm. Mm. And what about the character, um, Frank May, the one who uh, survives the, the deadly heat wave? Um, why do you think that he is chosen to survive? Uh, I need to learn how to like unraise my hand. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to answer all the questions. Okay. <laughs> I might take a chance of that. Okay, um, Jackie. Um, and I don't know how far people have read. So that's one of the things I don't want to be a spoiler alert. I'm on page like 165. Mm -hmm. um, but at first, we don't even know 
that that character is going to come mm -hmm. uh, later on in the story. Um, and I think he serves as a witness mm -hmm. um, and an emotional vessel for what happened. Um, but I also wanted to say before that question was asked that uh, one of the things that struck me was the phrase at some point in there that said, India was the working class of the world. And I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I know the working class of Pittsburgh and um, what that, you know, I understand the idea of working class. Mm -hmm. And India really has become, if any of us answer any kind of phone calls or do any kind of stuff online, we know that they are uh, so, you know, so, you know, they're they're the the lifeblood of a lot of the internet. And so I appreciated uh, the fact that they say, enough, we're not going to be your working class people anymore. But I don't know if that's too much of a spoiler for people that haven't gone that far. We'll just, we'll just have to take that risk that uh, <laughs> will get revealed in the in the conversation because there's so many episodes. Uh, it's really, right. you know, if you got to 160 or so, you've already gotten through like 40 chapters, which is right. one of them has a different, you know, slightly different right, uh, right, right. on everything. So. Mm. Yeah, he's such a compelling character, isn't he? What what he suffers, and you know the whole description of the uh, post traumatic stress experience, trying to be in cold places, and and his um, and his radicalization. Well, I have to tell you, I was just cooking a chicken tonight, and opening the oven made me <laughs> feeling the heat of the oven made me, you know, immediately. <laughs> flashback to the book <laughs> it was so harrowing but but I didn't feel the slightest bit manipulated by it I felt like it was just a dose of extreme reality that I felt like I needed to I needed to read that description does anybody yeah. else have how what were your reactions to that opening that opening chapter oh. Of course, he has contacts in the U.S. and in the United Kingdom, so he is an ideal messenger mm -hmm. in a way to go back to powerful nations and try to convince them that this is really mm. happening. It's true. It's a good point. But... In response to the to the question about how how you reacted to the very very dramatic harsh opening, um, did you think it was needed? Do you think it was useful, or was it just almost was it too much? I thought it was useful at first. I, I read the first chapter and I was like, "This is a little cruel to me. I can't take a full on bath." 
uh, with my warm water, so relaxing, I can't do it. <laughs> but then later, um, as I kept reading, I felt um, that I've been, I, maybe I'm a little spoiled in terms of using Earth's resources that maybe like I kind of used it without being mindful and actually like telling me to maybe cut down on it a bit more is making me more mindful and actually a happier person. <laughs> I think it was necessary to establish the very existential uh, question that the issue poses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you remember what the group was that Frank joined after he came back to revisit India and decided he was going to become more Howdy. of an... But they wouldn't, they wouldn't let him, would they? No, they didn't let him. Yeah, they rejected him. Right. Because he wasn't one of them. But you'll, as the book goes on, you see more about this, what he goes through to try to become like them or do more, do things more the way they are doing them. Uh, I find his whole, I just find his plight such, so powerful, you know, because, you know, when, when, when um, Mary and the other characters are having their policy level meetings and talking about these massive concepts Mm-hmm. in policy language you know it's such a contrast that he you know he's just like a person on fire you know and 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 I I'm fascinated by his presence in this story well I think the author really uses his personality because he was an aid worker, correct? When he went over there. So he already had this personality of being able to go to a country that sorely did not have resources in the area in which he was in. And now he's on this mission. He doesn't return to the United States. He doesn't return to the UK to a nice life. He's decided to take on this role of being the sounding board for this is what happened. I was there, I witnessed it, and you're all ignoring it. So I'm going to make you see it. <laughs> right. You know, um, uh, Mary, you had the you had the idea that we should just read aloud chapter two. Yes. On, on page thirteen, it won't well, take long. <laughs> take a minute. It, it, yeah, I, I do think it's. Um, it sort of uh, cap encapsulates this. Um, Holly, do you have your book with you by any chance? No, my book's arriving tomorrow before I hit the road. Okay, um, okay, okay. I good. wasn't going to even come. Oh I no, no, it's so good that you came. Better, so glad you're so good. You've had to you'll, you've had to traverse some spoilers tonight, but it's really good. I don't think this will do. So one of the things about this book that's interesting is you don't always know who's speaking, which character it is uh, in any chapter, and at least until you get into it uh, for a while. But after the first chapter, when basically we know that Frank is survived barely and that everybody else is dead, that's the last line of chapter one, everyone was dead. Chapter two is as follows. I can read the whole thing. 
I am a God and I am not a God. Either way, you are my creatures. I keep you alive. Inside, I am hot beyond all telling. And yet my outside is even hotter. At my touch, you burn, though I spin outside the sky. As I breathe my big, slow breaths, you freeze and burn, freeze and burn. Someday I will eat you. For now, I feed you. Beware my regard. Never look at me. That sounds like an Indian god. Sounds like, you know, um, Shiva. Is that the destroyer? Mm -hmm. But doesn't it also sound like the sun? That was it like me, it sounds like the sun. It's yeah. So it's both, really. Uh, or, yeah, both. I just think so th there we are right there, you know, page 13 of this book. And we've already heard from the sun and from God. <laughs> and from there we move on to article 14 of the Paris Agreement of the United <laughs> Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And Kate's point is exactly right. The contrast between all these good people, all these national leaders and politicians getting together and trying to develop solutions. And what's actually happening out there in the real world is so uh, enormous. It's almost hard to, almost hard to take it in. It's funny how as humans, we really, I think most of us are just able to take in the story of one person or a very, very small group of people, but um, but large scale suffering, I feel like something shuts, you know, some sort of something shuts down and it's harder to stay um, really, really attuned. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the genius of this book. Um, um, what is the ministry for the future? Now, that sounds science fictiony. <laughs> but in the story what is the ministry for the future well it's, it's a united nations ministry uh, plan, planning uh, is that what you would say are charged with planning for the future mm -hmm. And, uh, and they're based conveniently enough where in Switzerland. <laughs> Switzerland, indeed. Yeah. And and why is Mary Murphy chosen to be the head? I remember there's a conversation she has with another character, and she says, Oh, you should have been the head of this agency. Why why do you think that she's the one who's chosen? That's a good question. I've, I've forgotten, but mm -hmm. had a good idea about that. <laughs> I think I remember that she, uh, that her friend, her Russian friend, who was the, what was her Russian friend in charge of something else? Tatiana. Yeah. Yeah. Tatiana, yeah. She said, because you're a nice Irish girl and everybody listens to you. I was just going to say the same thing, that she's a listener. And I think oh, stop. as 
the action progresses, progresses, you see that she does listen mm -hmm. um, and you see that, but um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, but that's an interesting comment on the kind of leaders that, that are and, and aren't in positions of authority, you know. Trying to get the sun, speaking of the sun, I'm trying I to get know. the sun off of me. <laughs> you and Mary are both being right. bombarded by the sun. I tried by the sun. get my blinds completely closed. I think maybe I can move my whole, yeah, is it better? Yes, much better. I can just and, move my yeah. hmm. Yes, that'll be better. I think, I think Mary is kind of the mediator. She has a tendency in all these group things that she has the ability to listen to sides and have to listen to each other. Mm -hmm. And that was my reaction when she was talking to the other character about why was I chosen? I got the feeling that's what somebody else saw in her was the fact that she could lead a group by listening and moderating what was going on. Now, whether that holds up you know, through the end of the book because she's really getting pushed you know out of it because i think i'm on page 140 something too yeah well she she goes through a lot as do all the characters in this book but um you'll you'll see she emerges um changed and and in many ways stronger uh as a result of all of these things but not um not without a lot of struggle and uh you know i might just add one other thought which is that you know, Ireland is kind of perfectly positioned in the sense of this global situation because it's a country that has suffered famines and huge losses in population itself. Um, they were colonized in effect. Um, so they've lived through all of that and are still underdeveloped relative to, you know, other parts of, of the EU, certainly. Um, and they've suffered through wars and famines, et cetera. But didn't I read that in the in this book that a third of the population died in the potato famine, a third left for the United States and elsewhere. And then that final third, they were just the remnant. That was all that was left. And that's, we a that's a that's a mass extinction, right? Exactly. But it's not something we think about now, of course. I mean, most of us sort of have heard at least some of the history of, you know, the Irish who came to America and were underclass and discriminated against and, you know, had had, had a terrible time being accepted. But now our world is full of people with Irish back, Irish names from Kennedy to Biden, et cetera, who, you know, sort of came into power and, uh, you know, did very, very well. But yeah, but their country, um, their country was decimated, really decimated. Mm. Mm. I think another reason why Mary was chosen was because I, I think she like also wants to believe that um, politicians and governments will, will um, I think she wants to like believe in them or she, she does believe in them. Like, um, not to give out spo uh, okay, spoilers, but um, when, when he attacks her and he's like, you're not like doing enough, you're not going fast enough. She's like, no, like these are what we're doing. And so I, I think she really like wants to believe in the, in the government and the ministry. 
And I'm glad you brought up the confrontation. So this is a this is a spoiler if um, if you haven't yet gotten to page um, hundred and something or other. Um, but, but but Frank May actually uh, accosts Mary Murphy and 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 leads her into into her apartment, and they have a confrontation. He threatens her. I mean, she's afraid yeah. for her life, really. Absolutely. And he says, and he's, he's fearless. He's riddled with fear and fearless, right? I, I, it, yeah. Um, so in that scene, if you've read that scene yet, which one of those characters, Frank May or Mary Murphy, do you, do you sort of almost sympathize with the most in that scene? I think I sympathize with Frank May. <laughs> um, but uh, she, of course, is used to politics being, I just found, reminded myself that she was an ex-foreign minister for mm -hmm. uh, Ireland. And her way of running things is just exasperating to him or the politician's way of running things. Right, right. Yeah. Not just her. Polite, not, no sense of urgency. <laughs> right. right. Seems like it's a, a, a common dynamic that happens in social change movements that you have people who are willing to plod along through the grind, grinding, changing of minds and changing of laws. And then you have the other contingent who's like burning on fire and wants to, you know, through anarch anarchic means, make it happen now, you know, um, and being involved in various social justice things. I've seen it over and over. And I tend to always be the more the, the mediator, mm -hmm. uh, which at some time, you know, you wonder at some point, well, maybe that's not the best way. I mean, maybe we do need, you know, uh, something more violent overthrow, which doesn't suit me very well. But, you know, I can understand the passion of people making it happen when there's such um, uh, consequences, because who are we, at, you know, saying we as the persons who are uh, going slower for moderation, who are we today? Aliens. Everybody on this group is <laughs> identified. Yeah. And so it's like, but then we're asking people to suffer uh, while change is occurring. You know, um, we're saying, well, your your personal suffering needs to go on until we make a smooth transition. And is that fair to ask of the people who are, you know, who are going through it in, in any different movements? Yes like responsible uh, investing. Mm -hmm. Remember Mary, when you brought that up at the investment committee <laughs> and they looked at you like you were some firebrand. <laughs> Funny story, but it has to do with the St. James um, investment and savings and the desire to um, make sure that we do a responsible job and don't waste yeah. our by making bad investments and you know that we are careful and uh, balanced etc but 
yeah, I was a, I was a part of this group for a while, and I came up against the people who were the professional uh, money investors. And when I raised the possibility that we should be applying some principles to what kinds of companies we would allow our funds to be invested in that would exclude, for example, um, oil and gas companies because their work is inherently not sustainable. Um, I was basically patted on the head <laughs> politely. <laughs> I think it's, it'll be time for, to take another run at that question soon. <laughs> I agree. I, I First, think I'll so. make sure to get this book for all the members of the investment committee. And then. And you can show them that, you know, pulling out of certain industries oh. actually gives better returns, uh, you know, staying away from certain things. It's, it's less risk. I think a lot of a lot more information is now available so that it doesn't look like it's just a political right. uh, but that it actually makes sense to look at the risk of, as you say, of investing in businesses that are already looking like they're going to be superseded mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. Mm. Um, so um that's interesting what you said a few minutes ago, Emily, about how you identified more with Frank May because I because I'm guessing because of his anguish and his suffering. That's right, and uh, and it all it also seems to imply that information from poor countries doesn't have the same value as. Mm-hmm. as the information from the wealthy countries that tend to be powerful in politics um, or have the most influence in politics. Um, yeah. I'm not real sure on the timeline between when he actually was confronting her to when the actual incident occurred. So I really could understand his frustration because you think of all the mass traumas that we have and then we talk about it and talk about it talk about and then it just kind of goes away and then it comes back but if you have been a victim of one of those i'm sure the slow prodding that's going on of talking about it and we're going to make change and we're going to do better and we're going to do all this stuff and then nothing happens because it no longer is a topic of conversation or on the front pages of the newspaper and that it would be extremely frustrating to people that have actually experienced the devastation as in him, because that's what he kept saying to her was, you know, you're wasting time, you're not doing anything. So what are you accomplishing? And that kind of thing. And yeah, I have to admit he's right. (laughs) They weren't doing anything. They were just meeting (laughs) and making up subcommittees. And then that's when the black, what did they call it? The black group or something that could actually do something that was off the books and unlawful and, you know, all that other stuff. That's kind of the extreme. Jackie, were you going to say something? Be very long. Well, it's, it's not I, that years. this may be a, going off on a tangent, but as an educator, I'm faced uh, with the work that I do in trying to get children the future all right, we're talking about the fu- the ministry of the future. Well, I work with the future. 
and how to get them to understand uh, this, you know, climate change. It's a part of the standards. I mean, it's part of what we're expected to teach to children is the effects of climate change without making them desperate. You know, and and uh, one of the, so without, you know, it's like, how do you, so in a way that conversation was, she was the political, rational person and he was the emotional, uh, experienced, you've got to change, you've got to do something right away, you're not doing enough. And I sometimes feel that that happens with 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 the education as well. And one of the things that uh, a quote that I have gone with has been, you have to teach children to love the world before they can save it. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that? Um, because it's like, we can just be really doom and gloom with kids with climate change. And I'm not sure that's productive. (laughs) No, um, I used to have these arguments with my former boss, Jerry Brown all the time because (laughs) his natural tendency is to go to the prophetic, you know, Mm-hmm. And go out with a sign and tell everybody it's we're doomed and we're all going to hell, and um, that doesn't resonate very well with lots of people, not just not just children, but for children, um, I think the the situation now, especially having been through the pandemic, uh, is that you know many of the younger twenty somethings you know, late teens and and 20s are extremely pessimistic about the world and their ability to do anything to make it better. And it's a, it causes not only distress to them personally, but it's really disabling. It's not, it's, the future does not um, does not want that. You know, we need people who have ideas and energy and uh, and and hope and willingness to to change. And that is very much one of the things that I've been thinking about uh, lately in terms of you know how I want to spend my time too. Well, one of the things I do is I write curriculum for outdoor education, and there's a a, a camp in the ocean, and there's a camp. In the, in the mountains and uh, we deal with ocean acidification mm-hmm. and we try to get across that the oceans are changing and they're collecting data on that ocean acidification and that changing. And we wanna say, okay, but you know, it's still gonna be okay. <laughs> Life is, you know, there's, I need an optimism here. (laughs) I need, because so often what we end up showing in the process is not positive. Um, Well, Juliana, you, um, you're in a different generation than the rest of us on this conversation tonight. What kind of 
optimism or pessimism do you see among your your age group? Um, I see, um, honestly, not much optimism. I have met a lot of people my age, obviously, and only a few of them seem to be um, active in reserving resources. There was this one girl I met in college. She took army showers, and that really got me thinking like, hey, I, I let water run while, while I do my stuff in the shower. This is a fantastic idea. But other than that, um, honestly, not many people my age are interested in um, reserving resource, Earth's resources. It is very sad. I think, I think um, also, oh, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I won't try to prove myself innocent in this sense, but also like the environment I was in was kind of discouraging to me. I felt that my own personal efforts will not matter in these in this in this sense because um, uh, our society is very messed up in this sense. So what can my own personal um, efforts matter? And um, it, it's very pessimistic. It is. Hmm. That's pretty much what you're you're saying. Karen, you have grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> teenage grandkids. Who, and they're very optimistic. I have to say at 15 and 17, you know, I mean, they've got life by the tail and are into, into plays and activities, you know, and outdoors. Of course, Virginia is different. I have to tell you, though, Virginia is giving up plastic bags. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, they finally decided that plastic bags and stores are not a good thing. That mm -hmm. just happened not too long ago, you know, and what's out of it. So, you know, but they are optimistic in the sense of they're glad to be back at school. They're glad, you know, to be around their peers, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The 17 year old starting to look at colleges and excited about that. I guess the question, the question is sort of, as Jackie talks about curriculum development and trying to um, uh, open the eyes of people in their teens, is that the group that you're working with or little ones, Jackie? You're muted. That's because my dog was barking. <laughs> um, uh, it's all ages, but it's it's part of the California state standards that children that they need to know about the effects of humans on environment, um, and it, it it occurs at all grade levels. So um, how you deal with it at three, five is different than how you deal with it at, you know, six, eight and, and at nine, 12. But it's a continual thread that um, is expected that education should inf inform 
the future generation of what's really going on. And then, and then the trick is right to, as you were saying before, to help them feel enough hope and personal agency that they can stay attuned, right, and and active instead of spiraling either instead of either not thinking about it, which is a strategy, right. <laughs> or or as some of Juliana or like Juliana's describing, sometimes just saying, "What can I do?" Right. And I feel like for the people that I deal with uh, who are more like law students <laughs> or some undergraduates or graduate students mostly, um, it comes down to questions about like, where am I going to spend my time? What kind of job am I going to take? Uh, how am I going to vote? You know, am I going to vote at all? And if so, you know, what difference does it make? More so than about the you know, what kind of bag do I uh, take to the supermarket or what kind of products am I going to buy? Although that certainly is, I mean, there's a lot of awareness of that too, but I, I tend to see Juliana's, what Juliana is saying is that individually people may not feel like they're um, recycling or, um, you know, not buying products that are made in factories that have bad practices um, is something that they they do, but they don't really necessarily think it's making any difference. Right. Speaking of making a difference, um, um, in the book, some of the worst effects of climate change are shown that, that they may be reversible through these massive engineering uh, projects like the effort to stop the glaciers from yeah. melting, or or in India, that, that what were they putting into the cloud cover? Well, they were volcano shooting volcano eruption. That would um, yeah, I never I'd never heard of that. Is that a real thing? Yeah. <laughs> and then the debate with other countries worrying that the winds would take that into their into yeah. their so so. Um, do you all? Okay, obviously the costs are are high and and the and the risks are high but do you think that that sort of massive engineering efforts like these should be undertaken what about you Stuart we haven't heard heard from you in a while what do you think about those massive engineering projects oh I you know I've seen such progress in my own uh, lifetime and in involvement in environmental issues um, you know, beginning with the development of the electrostatic precipitator and, uh, and our regulation of automobiles that uh, I believe that such progress is absolutely vital and has to be made. Absolutely. But what about those, what, what about something like, like uh, shooting volcano particles into the cloud cover or, or trying to prevent glacier melt? I think the latter is probably less risky than the former, but you know, I'm not a I'm not a scientist. I really uh, I'm a, unable to say what the the fallout would be literally and, mm. and metaphysically with, with regard to doing some of those things. Mm. I think we have to experiment in the laboratory first. Right. Yeah, it's you know some of them is it would take such an effort you'd almost want to have uh, a body, uh, an international body of agreement 
of where to put our humanities efforts. Um, what would be the the best bang for a buck? You know, it's like what would be the most likely to cause the most change, and what what is our capacity for um, putting it, making it happen, and what would be the best thing? You know, it's it's kind of like do I reuse a plastic bag or not fly on a trip to Europe? You know, what's, which is going to be the better one? You know, it's trying to prioritize what you, what you do on a, on an individual level, but on a societal level, that's, you know, how we can only do so much. So what would be the best thing to do and who's going to agree on it? I thought the picture thing was absolutely incredible. You know, when they were describing it, if that really, you know, can solve a problem of pumping the water out and sending it through the air so it would freeze and build up the glaciers. I thought, wow, somebody could figure that out. There is hope <laughs> that people, there are people smart enough to come up with good solutions. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a group of people who are more open to some of those ideas than many, many others are. There's a lot of, um, it's not just skepticism, because I think it's always appropriate to be skeptical, but, um, you know, when scientists look at problems like the ones we're facing and put their minds to it, and engineers and even inventors and investors, you know, they they want to try things. They want to see if there's something we can do to keep the problem from getting worse and maybe even turn it around. And um, there's a, a lot of um, resistance to that. I think coming from people in the environmental movement of whom I count myself one, um, having come back for that background, but I've worked more on the technology side of things. So I, I tend to be an optimist that humanity can invent its way out of some of the terrible problems that we've yeah. created as we've done to such a great extent with you know so many um, diseases and pollution and you know come up with better cleaner ways of manufacturing things and ways to use energy renewably and so forth but even you know today when you talk about the possibility of capturing carbon from the atmosphere and using it, um, you know, either maybe storing it or maybe actually making it into useful products, like putting it in concrete that you can use to pave uh, the roads with, um, people react immediately as if that was just a kind of a, um, excuse to keep doing business as usual instead of making, you know, deep uh, that need to be made. I think uh, one of the things about this book, and you see this more as it goes along, is that it's sort of an all of the above <laughs> situation where, you know, we the, the, the problems are so widespread and so profound that we have to, we can't just reject anything completely out of hand, I guess would be, I would say. Well, I mean, car emissions, that's been such an, a big part of your own, your own work mary and it and isn't it true that in california it's really going to change and has yes. changed right yes. it has changed and it will continue to evolve um but then when you look at the size of the hole that we've got to fill um in terms of reductions and emissions 
I, I don't think we can even do it with zero emission vehicles that are all electric uh, and all battery uh, powered unless we could also find ways to build fewer of them, you know, actually drive less as well. So that then gets into the realm of city planning and um, how we build our buildings and, you know, how we, how we uh, choose to um, get around. And that, that raises issues that historically, traditionally at least have been very, very hard for the political system to to deal with it's just again we're beginning to talk about them but as uh, as frank says very slowly mm. Mm. i do you think the pandemic and people being able to work remotely and all is going to have some kind of effect on it mary because i know uh, for my kids jennifer works at the security exchange commission her group is not going to work I mean, they're not going in office anymore. They're all 100% remote. And it's only crossing the Potomac, you know, to get there. So it's not, like, but there's this huge SEC 10-story building attached to Union Station that the government is renting that they don't need anymore. So that cuts down. I mean. Yeah. It's, it's true in all major cities, New York and LA and San Francisco. It's emptied out office buildings in the central core. And people are actually starting to talk about <laughs> converting them into housing. <laughs> what a thought. What a thought. <laughs> I, I just wanted to jump in for a minute and say that the um, geoengineering projects that are discussed in the book are what I try, try to end my curriculum with, with mm -hmm. students saying like, it's like, you've got to give them hope. You can't just say everything is, is, you know, forget your future because it's already, you know, done. Yeah. You know, you've got to give them hope. And some of these geoengineering projects, you can instill in them, you know, we need engineers, we need scientists, you're going to help solve this problem. And look, there's hope on the horizon. And I just, I just want to try and get that idea across because there's so much doom and gloom um, that if there's no hope, then people aren't going to try. Um, the other, um, that brings me to the concern that like, yes, like um, showing children that there's hope is, is um, going to help them take action. But what if like some people want to depend on that so much that um, we don't do the personal commitments that we discuss, like, um, you know, like maybe cutting back on the resources. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's the, that's just, that's the, that's the balance. And, and it sounds like you're dealing with it, Jackie, with, mm -hmm. um, with younger children. And Mary, I know in your courses at UCLA, or your lectures, or however you interface with students there, your law students and whoever else you're doing it as well. Um, yeah, I mean, these are really interesting questions. Um, I just, I see that Rose and Marty have just joined. Rose and Marty, I am, I am apologizing to you. This book group got shifted to 6 p.m., we tried to get the word out, but we were not successful, clearly, in getting the word out to you. But for the next two Tuesdays, it'll be at 
6 p.m. at this same Zoom address. And please accept my heartfelt apologies. But the good news is it's recorded. And so we'll make uh, we'll make the recording available so that you can you can listen to all of the wonderful discussion tonight. And we're we're coming up to the end of the hour. Does anybody have a final thought that they'd like to share? Oh, Mary, over to you. What's your final? Oh, no, Mary, no, it looks like Emily has a, a final I just, thought. I just thought I might mention my niece uh, says she's listening to the audio book. And the, it's very, very compelling. So she she really recommends the audio. Uh, that might be an easier way to take it in, uh, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Sarah Jane's listening to the audio as well. Uh, this like is getting rid of a lot of my mental blocks when it comes to caring about the environment. It's cool. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. So there's another, we have geoengineering and we have science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I everyone... just really thank everybody who's hung in with this and urge you if you haven't finished it yet to finish the book because it actually gets more interesting, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> and, and opens up a lot of new avenues for thought, for things that we can be doing and that are gonna be happening in now and in, in the years to come that will involve all of us. So, I'm so next Tuesday night, we'll be here at 6 p.m. and we'll be looking at really um, ch chapters 45 to 84. <laughs> <laughs> but feel free to finish the book if you want as well and then we'll we'll do the final chapters uh on in the third session good night everyone good night thank you